Hey, thanks for joining us again when we're going through our series here on the Gospel of Luke. And it's interesting because it, it, as I'm going through this, I mean, I'm learning a lot as we go through this as well. But one of the things I'm keying in on is this idea of Jesus actually talking quite a bit about storms. And, uh, and so what we find ourselves in right now is this space where Jesus is actually, uh, and the disciples are actually encountering a storm. And, uh, and, and so there's a lot for the disciples to learn in this, and I think there's a lot for us to learn in this. I will tell you, I don't think storms are fun, whether they're at sea or in real life, and yet we learn lessons through the storms that we would never learn in life in any other way. Uh, Luke 8, 22 to 28 relates a miracle of Jesus calming the storm. And, uh, and, and it is both a, a spiritual thing it is, as much as it is a physical thing. Uh, it's also a relational piece that comes along with this. And, and so this, is, this particular miracle is one that starts this series of miracles that Jesus does that culminates in Peter acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord, uh, that he is, in fact, God in, in chapter 9, verse 20. And so these miracles have a lot to teach us. They had a lot to teach the disciples and really teaching us about who Jesus is and what it means to us in the trials of life. And so this particular miracle that we're going to look at today shows us that since Jesus is Lord of all, we can trust him in all. Since Jesus is Lord of all, we can trust him in all. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25, in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Please use it. And so Luke, 20, Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25, it's, it's just a few short verses, but it's packed with so much meaning. And I would suggest to you encouragement and challenge at the same time. So Luke chapter 8, 22 to 25, here's what it says. One day, Jesus said to the disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. As they sailed across, the, as they sailed across Jesus settled down for a nap. But soon a fierce storm came, about, came down on the lake. The boat was filling with water and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and suddenly the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, where's your faith? The disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man? They asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much that you are the God above all things. Jesus, you are the one who is above creation. And so then, Lord, we recognize and we desire to recognize more consistently that when the storms come, you are above the storm. And so because of that, we are able to have confidence in knowing that, that we can turn to you and be secure. And so, Lord, even though these storms of life hit us from every imaginable kind of angle, we know that you're stable and we know that you're consistent. And we know, Lord, that you will use these things in our lives to bring about uh, more perseverance that leads to more character. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the storm, even though the storms are difficult. 
And so, Lord, as we're looking into your word today, may we be a people who have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you. In your name I pray. Amen. So as I said before, uh, since Jesus is above all, then we can trust him in all, specifically then as it relates to the storms of life. And so this particular story is interesting to me because at the end of the story, we have the disciples saying amongst themselves, who is this man that he even commands the winds and the waves and they stop? And the question that Luke wants us to consider then is who is this? Like, who in fact is this? And, and, and I will tell you that, that both the Old Testament and New Testament point, of course, to Jesus as being God. And, and so the answer is that Jesus is Lord of all. In the beginning, Jesus spoke and created the universe. And so it's no big deal for him to speak to the wind and the waves of his creation and have them obey him. And yet for the disciples... And I, I want to suggest for us, because we get shocked by these kinds of things as well. For the disciples who were still growing in their awareness of who Jesus is, it's an amazing miracle. And I would suggest to you that uh, even those of us who, like the disciples were living this out and learning who Jesus was along the way, we get, to, we get this hindsight perspective and we get to identify who Jesus is um, in, in the context of, of the Bible. And we're still surprised when miraculous things take place. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the disciples would be unaware fully of who Jesus was at this point and also then be surprised when he does something amazing. And so we all know that Jesus is Lord and we can repeat that phrase easily, but we often, I think, um, don't really know him as Lord in this practical daily situations and encounters that we have. And so the Lord often does for us what he does for the disciples. And he shows himself to us and he puts us in situations that are uncomfortable for us in order to show us his lordship. Here's what I mean. If you look at the first part of the passage, it says one day, as, uh, one day Jesus said to the disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. Let's cross to the other side of the lake. And so Jesus actually led them into the storm. He said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And you may ask yourself, well, did Jesus know that there was a storm coming? Well, think about this for a moment. What didn't Jesus know? The only thing that Jesus indicated that he didn't know was the time and the hour of his return. But what he does know is everything else. So did he know what he was getting them into? Well, he knows all things. And so he knew that they would encounter this storm. Although the disciples were veteran fishermen, and they knew that storms would come from time to time uh, in the Sea of Galilee. They probably didn't anticipate this storm. Now, I mentioned it's the Sea of Galilee. And so I think it's important for us to gain an understanding of what the Sea of Galilee is. I think for those of us, especially those of us who live in the Western Hemisphere, we have difficulty kind of picturing what the Sea of Galilee looks like. And, and, and having this image would be really helpful for us. And so just want to let you know that the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about 7 to 8 miles wide. It is uh, a lake that sits in a depression. Uh, and, and so it's like kind of like at the foothills of, of these different uh, mountain ranges and, and hills around it. And it sits in this depression at the bottom of them. And it's actually, um, it's actually 700 feet below sea level. 
surrounded, like I said, by these mountains that range anywhere from about 2,000 feet above sea level on the eastern side of the lake. And so when the winds come over it and they come down in, they often can create these high wind stormy environments and it can create some very violent storms. So that's important to understand. And these storms can, uh, they've been recorded as having waves that can range up to about 10 feet. And, and so these are incredibly violent storms on a small lake. And, and when you put a fishing boat on there, it becomes a dangerous thing for people. It's actually, the, the fishing boat, they were, they were usually small. The surviving example that we have from that day is a fishing boat that's about 27 feet long. It's about seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet deep. And, and so this is not an enormous ship. And so when you're talking about this thing being on waves that are 10 feet tall, and you got to also remember that these guys didn't have motors, and so turning this thing wasn't that simple. They had to use oars. And, and so they would have been afraid for their lives. And it was one of those unexpected storms that hit that evening, uh, unexpected to the disciples, but certainly not to Jesus. And it must have been quite a storm because even these seasoned fishermen, like you have to remember, like it's not like these guys weren't on the Sea of Galilee before. These were seasoned fishermen. They'd been on this lake all their lives fishing, and they feared for their lives. But even though it was so terrible, the sovereign Lord led them into it. Like, imagine that for a moment. These guys actually feared for their lives. And the Lord led them into it. Now, the Bible clearly affirms that God is both loving and sovereign. And so we have to keep these things in, in check with each other as we're talking about this. Because we may ask ourselves, well, why would Jesus take them into something that would create such a level of fear that they would fear for their lives? Like, doesn't he love them? Wouldn't he want to actually protect them from that kind of thing? And we read in the in the... In the account here that Jesus, in fact, actually led them into it. So he's sovereign in that he's in control of all these things and he's loving in that he was present with them. And that's an important piece to remember as part of it. So the Bible clearly affirms God to be both loving and sovereign. And so we won't, we will not gain any comfort in trials by denying God's sovereignty. I think sometimes what people try to do is, is say things like, well, that's not what God meant for you. Yeah, you know, and anytime we try to console people with suggesting that something wasn't necessarily God's will, and, and I find myself doing this too, like part of it is, is like, well, then what do we do with the sovereignty piece of God? Like, what do we do with the part that everything is subject to him? And, and so maybe that's a question you want to wrestle with. Um, it, it's certainly not one that's easy to answer, but what we do know is that we have to couple his sovereignty with his love because it's always coupled in, in the scriptures. And so God may use, uh, you know, um, use these, these different kinds of trials to, to teach us something about himself and about us and about the relationship that we have with each other. And so the true God um, that we have, he does all kinds of things that cause us to wonder. And he may use Satan, for example, to bring trials like he did in the case of Job. And in Isaiah... He clearly states in Isaiah 45, verse 5 to 7, listen to this, and this is, this is something that doesn't make us comfortable, but I want us to, to, to recognize this. Our discomfort does not determine who God is. And, and so we need to rest first on who does he describe himself to be, and let's lean into that 
so that we can gain an accurate picture of who he is. So he says in Isaiah 45, verse 5 to 7, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. And then he says this, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and I create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. The Lord, I the Lord, do all these things. So, so what does he do? Well, he creates prosperity and he, and he creates disaster. He creates light and he creates darkness. And, and so like God is the God above all of these things. And so he's not just the God of the good stuff. He's the God who above all of these things. And and he claims that he is the, the one who does these things. And so this speaks into his sovereignty, but it also speaks in, into the fact that he is a loving God, right? Like he says right in the beginning, like there, there's no other God above me. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. And so there's this movement on our behalf, even though we didn't necessarily acknowledge him. And this is the same God that brings light and darkness. He's the same God that brings prosperity and disaster. And so how do we deal with this? We will find comfort in trials only if we affirm both God's absolute sovereignty and his unfailing love. Now, it's it's interesting because when we note this stuff, there, there are several features of life storms that are seen in this particular storm. And I think it's important that we look at the, no, the notion of life storms and recognize that, that God is sovereign. And so because God is sovereign, he can be trusted but he's also loving, so we recognize that he can also be present. So there can be a sense of peace and assurance in the midst of the storm. So storms hit suddenly without warning. Storms not only test and develop our character, but they also at times can reveal our character, or at the very least, where we're at in life at that point. Hudson Taylor, who's a founder of China Inland Mission, he was talking to a young missionary who was about to start his work in China. And he says, look at this, he said. And then he pounded his fist on the table, and there were these teacups that jumped, and one teacup spilled over. And, and while he startled the young man, the young man was wondering what was going on. And Taylor said to him, when you begin your work, you will be buffeted in numerous ways. In other words, you're going to experience these storms in numerous ways. The trials will be like blows. But remember... The blows will bring out only what is in you. And so the example there was when the teacup spilled, there was tea in it. And so the idea then is that when the struggle hits, the only thing that's going to come out of us is what's actually in us. And so we stay with the Lord in the calm so that we recognize him in the storms. That's the idea behind it, right? When, we're, when we are aligned with him, when we pursue him, when we are living in right relationship with him, the way Jesus talks about it, he says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you, right? Like if you, if you dwell within me, I'm going to dwell within you. And it's this idea that when, when we're with the Lord in the calm, we're going to recognize him in the storm. And not only just go to him when the storms hit, but actually be present with him as he is present with us in the everyday pieces of life as well. So they're going to come, and these storms are going to come. They're going to come unexpectedly, and anybody who's ever experienced a storm in life knows this. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that storms hit believers. Somehow there is this strange belief that that if we have the Lord, 
that we're not going to experience some of these difficulties and these trials that other people experience in life. And that's just not true. This storm hit those who were with Jesus in their boat as well as those without Christ in their boat. Mark chapter 4, verse 36 records that there were other boats that were with them. And this, if this was a fairy tale, we might read that the storm arose and the other boats were swamped, but the boat with Jesus sailed as smooth as glass. But the fact is, is that this isn't a fairy tale. And Christians are not magically exempt from the storms of life. Just because you're in Jesus' boat doesn't mean that it's going to be smooth sailing. Christians are not exempt from the trials. Now, now some think, yeah, okay, it's true, but I'm serving Jesus. And they think that being committed earns them some kind of special protection from the storms. But I want you to observe this. Storms hit obedient believers who were serving Christ. As a matter of fact, this storm did not hit the disciples because they had been disobedient. Rather, it's actually because they had been obedient. Jesus said, let's go over to the other side of, the, of this lake. And it's verse 22, and these men who had committed their lives to Jesus, they obeyed. What did they do? Well, they got a boat and they, they started going across the lake. And he led them straight into the storm. And in the same way, obediently serving Christ may place a smack dab in the middle of the storm. The storms that maybe we've avoided, we would have avoided if we would have just stayed ashore. In other words, sometimes obeying Jesus leads us to a place of storms um, in life that not obeying Jesus would avoid. But I have to tell you that obeying Jesus is always, always, always going to be the better decision. It would always be the most comfortable decision, but it is always the better decision. I've often found that uh, the most severe times of testing have come right after I've taken a new step of obedience with Jesus. Being obedient to the Lord does not exempt us from the storms. It often leads us right into them. And not only did the Lord lead the disciples into the storm, I want you to note what happened next because it's important. So it says here, so they got into the boat and started out. And as they sailed across, listen, Jesus settled down for a nap. And he knew what was coming. He, he, he tells them, okay, let's go to the other side of the lake. They're like, yep, let's do it. They get a boat. They jump in. They start sailing across the lake. Jesus knows there's a storm coming. And what does he do in response to that? He settles down and he takes a nap. This is the only incident in the Bible that I can recall where it mentions Jesus sleeping. And what a time to fall asleep. It would be one, of those, it'd be one thing if Jesus had said, men, storm's coming, Peter. Uh, I want you to stay at the helm. John, I want you to make sure that the sail is secure. James, get the ties down. Uh, and, and if Jesus had actively been involved giving orders, telling them, hang in there, guys, we're going to make it, the storm, well, the storm may have been difficult, but it would be bearable. But Jesus, when they needed Jesus, sorry, but when just when they needed Jesus to calm leadership and assurance, where was he? Just taking a nap. You ever felt like that during a trial? That you get into it and it seems as if the Lord has checked out and left you all alone? You're bailing like crazy trying to make sure that your boat's not going to go under in the midst of the storm, but the waves seem to be winning and you're, you're about to go under and you wonder where is the Lord in all of this? Our perception of crisis does not disrupt God's peace catch that? 
Our perception of crisis does not disrupt God's peace. In other words, God's not going to panic. That's not what he does. He's sovereign. He's over all these things. He's not going to be panicking in the same way that we're going to be panicking. And so it's important for us to recognize that as this was all going on, as these guys are fearing for their life, as the storms are coming, and it's looking intimidating, and it's looking overwhelming, Jesus isn't disrupted by the storm. Now, the reason that that's important is because when we have storms in life, it's amazing to know that they don't have the ability to disrupt Jesus's peace that he then offer us. Now, in reality, the Lord was with them in the storm. He's always there, even though sometimes it feels like he's not. But often he waits until we're at our wit's end so that we sense how great our need actually is. But even before the disciples called him, Jesus was there with them in the boat, going through the storm with them. As he promised, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. And as Paul proudly affirms, no trial can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39. And so whenever you're in a storm, even though you think at first that the Lord isn't there, I need you to understand the truth. He's there. The first thing we got to do in storms of life is to affirm that Jesus is Lord even over the storms. Like, that's huge. We may be overwhelmed, but he is not. And then when we recognize this, then we got to trust Jesus in the storms of life. It's one thing to acknowledge him to be above them. It's something different to trust him in the midst of the storms. And so this lesson comes through when Jesus' question comes forward where he says, where is your faith in verse 25? If ever there's a time when it seems as if panic would be legitimate, it's when you're in a major storm and your boat is being swamped and overwhelmed. And yet Jesus rebuked not only the storm, but also the disciples for their lack of faith. The fact is that storms often expose how we're not trusting in the Lord. We can fake it in calm waters. We can impress others with how we seem to be all put together. And the disciples could cope with the normal storms quite well. They had been in storms on this lake many other times. They were the experts in handling their boat through rough waters. And at first, they probably thought, no problem, we got this. But this storm brought them to the end of themselves. And it showed them how they trusted in themselves more than trusting in the Lord. So often a crisis shows uh, a side of ourselves within the context of our faith uh, that we're often blind to. The Lord uses it to reveal new areas where we need to learn to trust him. Like the reality here is this. Jesus caused the disciples to enter into this storm so that they would recognize their need of him. You catch that? So they would recognize their need of him. He uses it to reveal new areas where we need to learn to trust him. And the fact is, is that they needed to learn their need of him, but also recognize who he was. He's not just some rabbi. He wasn't just teaching some great stuff. He wasn't just performing some minor miracles one could suggest in relationship to things like storms that they didn't feel they can handle. It's bigger. And so they had to ask the question, who is this guy? 
Now, often a crisis shows a side of ourselves that we're blind to. The Lord uses them to reveal new areas where we need to learn to trust him. Um, but we all must come to know our weakness so that we will rely on the Lord's strength, right? Like, the more I'm aware of my weakness, the more I rely on the Lord's strength. Storms often show us things that we didn't see in calmer times. And the other thing, you know what? Like storms tend to expose stuff within us that, that we just don't like in ourselves. Like I really dislike any selfishness within me, and I find that the storms of life cause me to be exposed to those selfish pieces of me. You know, like where I'm disrupted and I'm uncomfortable and it's me, 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 me. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, it's not that it's bad to acknowledge those things, but I think if we get stuck in that place, we're not able to lead on the Lord's strength because we're just brooding over our weakness. Storms reveal our distorted view of the problem, you could say. The disciples excitedly cried, Master, Master, we're going down, we're going under, we're going to drown. They thought that they were going to drown. They, to think that God's long-awaited messianic kingdom would sink to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee was absurd. But in their panic, the disciples had a distorted view of the problem. It's almost as if they thought the, th the problem was bigger than their Messiah. And not all fear is wrong, I have to admit. Like, but Jesus rebuked the disciples because their fear was excessive. Like some fear is useful because it makes us spring into immediate action to save our own lives and, and, and to, uh, and, or the, the life of a loved one who's in danger. But, but fear, when it's excessive, is actually wrong. And it's when we're focused on the problem so much so that we cannot see God's control over it. That's when we're not trusting him. And, and so there is this idea that we have a distorted view of the problem where the problem just seems so big that we allow it to, to seem bigger than, than God himself. The other thing is that storms reveal our distorted view of ourselves. Master, master, we're, we are going to drown. We're going down. And that, that we probably indicated Jesus as well, but I'm not sure that he was their utmost concern at that point. Their utmost concern, I think, would, would be their own lives. They weren't saying, hey, guys, if we don't get out of this storm, the Messiah is going to die. Like the first response and the foremost response that they had was fearing for their own lives. Storms have a way of exposing our self-focus. We can put on a front of caring about others until we realize that it's going to cost us. Self-pity is another sure sign that we have a distorted view of ourselves. Anytime we feel sorry for ourselves, we're too focused on ourselves. We need to stop and get the big picture of what God is doing, even if we can't see the way through it. The disciples did not see the way through the storm. They tried everything. And the only thing, actually, that ultimately worked was, was going to Jesus himself, the one who's above the storm. And I want to suggest the storms reveal a distorted view of Jesus. The disciples asked in awe, who then is this in verse 25? And that was their problem. They didn't realize who Jesus is. If they had known they would not have been so amazed at what happened. They underestimated his power. You catch that? I mean, think about the things going on in your own life or maybe in, past in life. Did you underestimate God in it? 
We do the same thing when we panic in a crisis, when we try to solve our problem by figuring everything into the equation except the supernatural power of Jesus. Our distorted view of the problem and of ourselves clouds our vision so that we fail to see the amazing person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And although Luke does not mention it, Mark's account actually has the disciples talking and and, and saying to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? And so not only like this is where we have the sovereignty and the love kind of mixed in because they're asking Jesus, look, don't you even care what's going on here? In a time of severe trial, it's easy to doubt the Lord's loving care for us. And that is why, by faith, we must always affirm two things in our trials. The first thing would be that God is sovereign, and the second one is that he is love. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So his mighty hand is not only just able, but but will lift us up in due time, right? So God is above those circumstances. And in addition to that, we're to cast our anxiety, our fears, our cares, our our insecurities on him because he cares for us. Storms reveal to us how much we truly trust the Lord daily. And storms should drive us to trust in the Lord of the storm. The disciples may have protested, We were trusting in the Lord. We called to him for help, but they were not really calling to Jesus in faith or he wouldn't have challenged them, saying, where is your faith? What they needed most in this dire situation was to trust the living God. The better we know the Lord, the better we can trust him. Who then is this, they ask? And it's a critical question. Clearly, this Jesus is fully human, he had a body that got so exhausted that he could sleep during a storm. The, fully, the full humanity of Jesus Christ should be of tremendous comfort to us when we are suffering from the limitations of our bodies. Hebrews chapter 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. But not only is our Lord fully human, he is also fully divine. He merely had to speak the word and the howling winds ceased and the surging waves were instantly smooth as glass. Just as Jesus' full humanity encourages us because he understands, his full deity should encourage us because he is powerful to act on our behalf. And the better we know him, the better we can trust him in our trials. And the bigger the storm, the more the Lord will be glorified when we trust him. We need always to keep in mind that the chief end of man is not to use God for our own happiness, but to glorify God no matter what happens to us. You catch that? Like the chief end of man is not self-preservation. The chief end of man is not to have ourselves lifted up. It's not to be happy. It is to glorify God regardless of what happens. And this storm revealed the glory of Jesus in a way that would have been hidden had it not happened. The disciples got a glimpse of his majestic power that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. The bigger the problem, the more our almighty God will be glorified when we trust in him. And as we trust him in this storm, the more we will be able to trust him in the next storm. 
The winds and the water obey Jesus without question, but we always have a choice. Now, sadly, when we, we often fail to obey and trust him, but I want you to notice that, the, that at first the disciples feared the storm, but at the end they feared Jesus. Their fear of the storm was due to their lack of faith. Their fear of the Lord stemmed from their new awareness of his awesome power. And so we could say that if we actively trust the Lord in our current trial, our faith will be strengthened to trust him in the next trial, in the next storm, right? So whatever storms you're going through or whatever storms you have gone through, we need to recognize that our faith in Jesus in that space can give us encouragement and strength in the next storm that will come because another one will. There's a children's song that says, with Jesus in the boat, you can smile at the storm. Now, certainly there's a sense in which that's true. But I, I think it's unwise to give it an overly rosy picture. We need to face squarely the fact that sometimes Jesus doesn't calm the storm. And that sometimes the storm... Um, it's exactly what Jesus is doing in order to be able to bring himself glory. Sometimes the boat does sink, and even if we're trusting in Jesus, it'll sink. John the Baptist, at the, he, he wasn't delivered from prison. He lost his head. Peter was miraculously delivered from prison, but James was put to death. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 17. So what we should do if we trust in the Lord, what should we do if we trust in the Lord, but the boat sinks? or the miracle doesn't come, or our expect, expected response from Jesus, our desired response from Jesus isn't what we get. The answer is, is that we trust the Lord Jesus as we focus on eternity. And you got to remember that, that this life here on earth, we're told, is but a mist. And, and so Jesus wants us to have an eternal focus. So do we know Jesus in that way? And if not... Don't wait till the storm hits. Seek him now. Trust him as Savior. He is our actual only hope for eternity, for heaven. Trust him daily in the small problems we face. And then whether he instantly calms the storm or whether your boat sinks, you will know the peace that the world doesn't get. It doesn't understand. It surpasses their understanding. It's the peace that comes from trusting Jesus, the Lord over all the storms. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that as we are challenged by the storms of life and we, we want to recognize that you're sovereign and that you're loving, and, and sometimes, Lord, we just have such difficulty in bringing these things together. I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be open to that truth, that you are above all these things. And in the midst of all these things, you are not subject to them. It doesn't disrupt your peace. And so, Lord, would you give us peace in the storm as we turn to you? In your name I pray. Amen.